0: How did you think of the idea? Originally I heard a true story about uh, some tapes that had been almost lost. I heard it off uh, Chris Thomas, the Pretenders and Eltons producer. That time he was doing the Sex Pistols and apparently the album um, got mislaid and uh, had it not been for some fellow who happened to find it, it might have just gone and got lost in the world and we thought that was uh, an interesting little story and stuff so I sort of filed it when you were writing in this initial enthusiastic period what do you do, lock yourself away and not talk to Linda and the kids? No, actually all I did um, was, as I say, I had this two hours every day in the car going to the studio and two hours coming back so instead of just sitting there being bored and listening to the news again and it's the same every time no, was it? so. millions of times you just think i know it better than they do <laughs> okay so then i'm sitting there and think what should i do and really just to relieve the boredom more than anything i thought i'll write a script so i started off doing it basically with that sex pistol story in my mind about lost tapes imagine how it might be a little bit tongue-in-cheek if my tapes went missing so i started to develop that as a story mm-hmm. and uh over a couple of days over a couple of weeks i just kept writing and I had fun writing it really so when you start to do it, you know, you do it for all those reasons. It seems like a good idea, but a bit of fun. Oh, I'm writing, you know, enjoying it. Oh, and then we'll put that song in. Oh, that'll be nice, wouldn't it? And you think of all the positive stuff, you know, getting up early, but it doesn't matter, you know, a bit of change, <laughs> challenge, all that. And you get very up on the whole thing. It's only about halfway through and you suddenly realise, you know, that you're going to have to explain to people what you've gone and done here.
1: Welcome to this week's Winlayer with Fab. I'm Ed Shan And I'm John Stone. Well, a couple little bits. The last time we were together was the happy birthday show. Once again, happy 82 to Ringo. Peace and love.
2: Hard to believe. 82, that's so great. And no stopping.
1: But we were having some fun. If you listened all the way through to the end, we had some uh, Pete Best commentary. (laughs) And so because of that, uh, someone sent me down a rabbit hole, and it turns out that SNL did a Pete Best skit in 1984.
2: Makes you wonder where it came from.
1: That was right about the time that Pete Best was kind of sorta in the news. He was trying to sell the Decca auditions.
2: Trying to make some money. The story of the Beatles. (laughs)
1: Maybe someone saw Pete Best on Letterman. John Lennon, George Harrison, and Paul McCartney, of course, are easily recognized, but the fourth member of the group doesn't really look much like Ringo Starr, and that, of course, is because
2: he is not. Uh, He is Pete Best. He was the original drummer in this group until he was bumped for Ringo. That took place in 1962. He is now out of the music business and is making a special appearance here tonight. We're pleased to welcome Mr. Pete Best, ladies and
1: gentlemen uh welcome to the program you're honestly one person i never thought i would get the opportunity to meet but you're somebody that i've known about uh well since 1962 essentially Mm -hmm. um what was the reason ultimately given to you for the change at the position of drummer
0: uh in a nutshell dave jealousy um we found out afterwards uh at the meeting they turned around and said that i wasn't a good enough drummer but consequently when we sort of turned around a lot of people you know, found out that uh,
2: jealousy was
1: creepy. This was February of 1984 that the skit actually aired. Nonetheless, there was a skit, and it's basically Pete Best and his wife hanging out in the kitchen, and Pete, as played by Brad Hall, Brad Hall, who's better known these days as Mr. Julia Louis-Dreyfus. <laughs> right. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus was actually in the cast at that time. It's Pete in a bad wig and bad mustache, going back and forth, between doing sort of normal kitchen things with his wife and just losing it over not getting his chance to be in the Beatles.
2: Kind of a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Yeah, exactly. You're normal, and then this rage takes over.
1: And so when the rage takes over, among other things, he opens the cabinet, and there's a picture of Ringo Starr on the inside of the cabinets, and he just takes a couple punches at it. Then there's a punchline we won't give away, but Pete gets screwed in the end. (laughs)
2: surprise surprise
1: it's a weird skit it's not all that funny a skit but it still kind of surprises me that in 1984 you know this is a decade before anthology where pete best was just kind of a name that they would write this skit about him
2: yeah well if i recall that cast there wasn't a whole lot funny in those years that was the cast with robert downey jr and brad hall and
1: then the next year ringo would actually host the show that was the billy crystal cast with the questionable ringo and billy crystal in sammy davis jr black makeup doing a duet right not something you'd see these days probably not and then the other thing I wanted to bring up, there was a photo that that was going around that I actually posted on my page, not not the group page uh, of Paul with the with the kittens from get back. The name of the mother is Mary and it's like, "Oh gee, he named his daughter who was in the womb at that time or just about in the womb at that time the same as his cat." That's interesting.
2: Well, my little rabbit hole this week was I just discovered that, you know, when the Beatles went to Manila, the Marcuses had only been in power a few months. Really? Yeah, in my head, for some reason, I thought, well, he was this guy who'd been a power in the Philippines for a long time, but he wasn't.
1: That's kind of the thing I'd always thought as well. Yeah. You know, and, and maybe it's just because from the very beginning and, and really when we started to know about it, you know, we always thought about Marcus as being strong man. Right. And, you know, maybe he just gets conflated with Castro. Because they were you know very sort of similar political figures at the time there was about five
0: sort of real big sort of funny looking fellas with guns and all the rest of the gear who did all the kicking yeah and you know they just had arranged you know it was so obvious they'd arranged to give us the worst time possible you know before we arrived at the airport so we just got hustled about and just you know i personally i just kept dodging these people because they were the ones trying to cause the yeah, just about the five of them because the others weren't bothering
1: on to our main topic what is our main topic <laughs> oh our main topic also comes from 1984 believe it or not what a coincidence we are talking about broad street but we're going to try and maybe not be nice about it but at least not just sit here and trash it it's not like what we'll, we'll do when we eventually have to get to the driving range show we're not gonna have anything anything nice to say about driving rain.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I should start off by saying that I hadn't really seen the film since nineteen eighty four. I mean I've certainly seen clips now and again, but I never had sat down to watch it.
1: And it's in YouTube on in its entirety and MPL doesn't care apparently. <laughs> They'll take any old 45-second clip with actual Beatle music down, but Broad Street, the whole hour, 46 minutes, no. You do whatever you want. We don't care.
2: Because there's no actual Beatle music in it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll get to that real quickly here. (laughs) And
2: I discovered that I didn't really like it when I saw it the first time. I had gone with friends. I mean, I had encouraged some friends to go with me, and we saw it, and no one liked it. And the people I was with were not big Beatle fans. And so it was kind of uh, like, why the hell did you drag us to this thing? <laughs> so that, that's my memory of Broad Street was walking through the parking garage with friends and them going, oh, God, that was so bad. So I didn't really see it until recently. And I did. And I don't like it any better, I'm afraid. <laughs> so there are some interesting things in it as a movie experience i i can't recommend it to anybody
1: it is absolutely not a major motion picture (laughs) (laughs) You can absolutely say that and broad street was and remains a guilty pleasure for me although at the time i was young enough that i was like part of a beatles group but my folks were kind of suspicious of them (laughs) (laughs) okay you know i I was pre-teens sort of going into teens at the time and was like oh, well, they're drugs and things. It's like, no, they're not.
2: <laughs> There's only one joint in the whole film.
1: <laughs> anyway, they got tickets to the premiere, and my parents wouldn't let me go. And it's like...
2: Yeah, you right.
1: <laughs> well, but then afterwards, I was talking to some of the folks in there, and they were like, uh, well... Maybe it was a good thing you didn't go. (laughs) There you go again with some friends later. I mean, Rupert is great.
2: (laughs) It wasn't worth the popcorn money, basically. (laughs) You know, when you go to a movie with friends, it's an experience. Oh, my gosh. You know, you're going paying the tickets and the
1: parking and everything else. Yeah.
2: So it kind of fell flat on that front.
1: Yeah, there's more plot in Rupert than there is in all of Broad Street, I think.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And that's actually really an interesting phenomenon to me because, you know, I was coming into this movie. Pipes of Peace had come out and I was kind of like, what is Paul going to do now? And his introduction was Rupert and the Frog Song, which really came off kind of like, what? I, I don't get this.
1: And we have to remember this was years before Pixar and, and years since the idea of, oh, we'll run shorts before the movie.
2: Right. It was that movie experience, I think, that Paul wanted everybody to have. I was actually surprised to find that Rupert and the Frog Song actually went to number three on the British charts. But the history of it was lost on American audiences.
1: That was my introduction to the Rupert character. And I've come to love the Rupert character quite a bit. There was a cartoon series. And when I was in college, everyone was wondering, why are you watching this Rupert <laughs> the Bear cartoon series? It's like, oh, well, you know, I'm interested in the characters. Like, oh, okay, whatever.
2: Yeah. And and there you go.
1: Paul won me over on that one.
2: Right. And, and I guess I probably should... Once again, say, I truly believe that music and art are what you get out of it. So what I get out of it may not be at all what somebody else gets it. Because, you know, people come to things at different points in their lives. My history with McCartney clearly predates yours. So that's part of it as well. So I think that anybody has a right to like whatever they want to like.
1: Objectively there's no question this is not a good film. Right. I didn't think you were going to fight
2: for that necessarily. Just that you know there were some things in it that you liked and that's cool.
1: So okay, you know, what's missing? Well, the first thing, a script.
2: Yeah, it's interesting that Paul McCartney, who by 1982 when they began to film this, had a pretty good reputation felt like in the entire world the best person to write this movie would be him. He hadn't shown any great skill at it before. I'm just surprised he didn't get somebody else to help.
1: Yeah, I almost think that had he gone through about, say, half a dozen more drafts with a professional writer, there might have been something there. Give much more to the real actors. You've got a great cast there, including Ringo and Barbara Bach. I like the idea of Barbara as a rock journalist.
2: Right. She played the Linda Eastman character, (laughs) you know.
1: (laughs) Kind of, sort of, although it's a bit more the journalist than the photographer. Yeah,
2: but it's the same... Kind of thing, you know. Ringo is attracted to her and, and begins to kind of flirt with her, and she flirts back, and that's kind of Paul and Linda McCartney the way they met.
1: That's a heck of a day there, you know. Yeah. <laughs> this is twenty-four hours, he meets her about eleven o'clock in the morning, and then they're pretty tight there by uh, eleven thirty at night.
2: Well, yeah, they get lost in a waterfall.
1: But that's a fantasy within a fantasy, so <laughs> you know
2: this is a a time to bring up what i think the plot is though he feels as if he's in a play he is anyway
1: yeah i'd agree with that so my thought is had they given a a little bit more meat to those two characters you know the love story then it might have worked a little better there's a story there a relationship story for sure it's not Broad Street as we have it. Even if you want to go with the Lost Tapes thing, you can have the journalist chasing the story of the Lost Tapes. And at the same time, Barbara Bach falls in love with Ringo. And so you could still make Paul the center of this story. And then you could also give Linda something to do. Linda has a lot of different looks in this film. <laughs> she goes for the androgynous sometimes. She goes for the really frou-frou princess in a couple scenes. And then at the end, I don't know what she's trying to be. Ivanka Trump, maybe.
2: It's hard to say that anybody paid any attention to that at all.
1: Yeah, it's like, okay, Linda, you're going to be in the scene. Pick out some costumes you like. Okay, I like this. Why is she wearing the fedora in the scene where they're uh, rehearsing? It's like...
2: Uh, Okay. You're right. It's not like she had a look through the movie.
1: This is some of the best fashion that we were to get out of Linda throughout her whole life almost. In real life, she tended to dress down and go for the comfortable over the showy. Although she definitely had a design sense. Uh, Obviously, her daughter says that she learned how to design from her mother. Then the cast. The cast is actually all very good, but they don't get anything to do. I think
2: Tracy Ullman in this is particularly awful. Probably one of the worst performances I have ever seen her give. And I'm not sure that it's her fault necessarily.
1: Oh, it's absolutely not her fault. She goes around crying for the entirety of her scenes in the film. And that's all she does. Yeah. But Paul returned the favor in the They Don't Know About Us video, where, again, both of them are acting much better than they do in Broad Street.
2: Just barely. Paul looking out that window, he doesn't look like he's driving anything. (laughs) Oh, well, okay. A particularly goofy performance.
1: Sir Ralph Richardson and Brian Brown. I got a quote here from Brian Brown, which is actually kind of interesting. For me to say no to this script, it would have to be the biggest, biggest bag of crap. Because how do you say no? It's effing Paul McCartney, a Beatle who I'd seen here at Sydney Stadium in 64 when I was a young fella. An absolutely delightful experience with him and Ringo. And Ringo, f me. We used to go and have lunch like this, and Ringo would start talking and tell you something, and you laugh so much you'd hurt. Now, wish Ringo was still drinking at the time.
2: <laughs> Are you basically saying that Brian Brown is a liar because it certainly was a big piece of crap? <laughs>
1: I don't know if he's just being nice or what.
2: Overall, I don't know what script Paul really had.
1: Kind of like Magical Mystery Tour. Let's draw a circle and, and
2: see what happens.
1: And we'll fill it in with a bunch of things that come to mind.
2: Yeah. I mean, just weird things in it, like this intimation that at one time Paul was always on the other side of the law. He's friends with Big Bob, and he's like, well, now it's all on up and up, like there was a time when it wasn't.
1: That makes little or no sense. I think we're going to go through the film here in a minute. The other positive I would say is I used to think the directing was terrible, but it's actually not that bad. There are some interesting shots, and it's... Framed well, and what is terrible is the incidental music. There's no way that I can tell that it's gone missing. (laughs) Good morning, all. Whether it was Paul's decision or whether it was the director's decision, they very much go for sort of corny 30s style. Let's hit it hard play it up with the background music it's like it's wears you down a little bit the film begins uh, actually i like the pre-credits i like uh, what is presumably paul writing on the window and the give my regards to broad street titles those are nice that then goes into what is a horrible opening for the film paul in the back seat of his limo stuck in traffic and the DJ comes on and says, Well, anyway, this should help you take your mind off the gloom. Remember the summer of '66.
0: Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Good day, sunshine. Oh, I need to laugh. And when the sun is out, I've got something I can
2: laugh about. Here's a song that never got played on the radio.
1: <laughs> and it's very clearly not the Beatles version of Good Day Sunshine. Right. It's a very 80s I you know, I understand Paul didn't want to pay to use the Beatles version, but still.
2: I suppose that's part of it. George, when asked about that whole experience and, the, you know, what did he think of, of the new versions? And he goes, oh, are they new? You know, I couldn't tell. To him, they're just all the same, and Ringo refused to play on it. Well,
1: exactly, on, on some of them, yes.
2: Well, none of the Beatles stuff.
1: We do have to quote George on Shanghai Surprise. It made Broad Street look like an epic.
2: <laughs>
1: okay, three minutes of Paul in the back of his limo, and then ending with him staring off into the distance in, in a daydream. Not a way to begin the film. There's no action. It doesn't draw you in in any real way.
2: It's the climax to Dallas. This whole movie is a dream.
1: We then start in on Paul's daydream. Paul in the car, that's a little bit funny. The super special car with Siri a dozen years before we actually had Siri. Good day, sunshine.
2: Good day, sunshine. Good morning. Here are your appointments for the day. 9.30 a.m. Meeting at office, 10.30am, recording studio, 12.30pm, film studios, 4pm, rehearsal, 5.30pm, interview. You will then take a short break. I found that so cheesy. When he's driving super fast, it's like, oh,
1: it's a comedy. Well, supposedly, and of course that was the basis for the video game. Yeah, I couldn't stand to play it until I won the game, but so I can't tell you what happens. But I can definitely tell you what happens when you
0: lose. And apparently, you turn into some sort of busker. Well, isn't that just a lovely tune?
1: Yep. So, if you've got absolutely nothing better to do—and I mean anything better to do—why not give this game a go? Possibly the only thing worse than the film. <laughs> It was a Commodore 64 video game, and it was a driving game, and that was kind of the whole thing, is your 8-bit Paul McCartney driving around avoiding things. <sighs> um, although I do like the, the biddies, the blue-rinsed ladies, <laughs> as they get their hats blown off. That's kind of funny.
2: Yeah. Too bad I couldn't get the actresses from help.
1: That would have been better, yes. Five.
0: But not two.
1: how oh, I'm should shall I? Then we go into what is ostensibly the plot. Paul goes into his office, which is, well, we'll call it pseudo-MPL. Right. And we find out that Brian Brown has gotten Paul into some shady business dealings with Rathbone Industries. Here's the dun-dun-dun kind of music. Right. They have this meeting, although this is the first Paul's heard of this. What's all this about a takeover by Rathbone Industries? I didn't know about that. Slight danger.
0: Nothing you need to worry
1: about. Again, if they'd found a way to make it more than just a day, that could have been another story. The whole business dealings, and, and then then Paul has to do his daily life around the business of the business. But, again, nobody thought of that. It's like, okay, here's the story. We're going to start this ticking clock. The tapes are lost. For some reason, if we don't find them by midnight...
2: But there's also the whole thing of, oh, here comes an outsider who is going to take over the company. Hmm, where have I heard that one before? If you knew the history of Paul McCartney, you'd go, okay, so this is kind of Apple, Alan Klein.
1: We could do a whole show on the psychology of Broad Street. (laughs) A father figure named Jim? Well, we'll get to that.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly, that's a big part of Big part of this film is, you know, the characters he put in at the end. I just think it's it's interesting that he introduces this light scene and then he he comes to introduce music. And what is the first song he does?
0: Yesterday
1: all my troubles seem so far. We see George Martin and Jeff Emmerich. Right. That's nice. You know, he, he threw them a bone. George Martin looks slightly embarrassed through the whole thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess.
1: So what are we doing? The medley. What medley? Okay, Paul, I'd like to hear a run-through of you, don't mind? Okay. Again, Ringo doesn't know what they're going to be playing in the studio.
2: Yeah, kind of a stupid thing.
1: Ringo's comedy bit is kind of funny. Or Paul tells him, Brushes. And he spends the entire medley looking for his brushes.
2: Going through all sorts of percussion instruments.
1: One of the assistants in the studio is very fey. There are a couple characters that Paul seems to be uh, playing up the gay nature of these characters.
2: That's possible. I think that is a, a thing in British theater. That kind of character.
1: Coming ready and not, boys. Like, uh, okay. Uh, yesterday, as Brian Brown says, very bloody appropriate. I mean, Brian Brown almost gets the Ringoisms in this film. He doesn't get much else, but he, he gets these lines, these cynical lines, either Ringo or George Harrison-style lines. Right, or Shake. It's a nice version of Yesterday.
2: Yeah, it's okay.
1: Which then goes into a nice version of uh, Here, There, and Everywhere. Yeah. Uh... You like it less.
2: I like it less. I don't like his lyrical change.
1: To lead a better life,
0: I need a love of my own.
2: I don't see the point in it, and I don't think it improves it.
1: Then Ringo finds his sticks just in time for the start of Wanderlust, a version which is almost exactly like the tug-of-war version. Exactly. It's nice. I mean, it's, it's a good version, but the first thing he does in this day is he, he has a session. It's going to be one of those days. Then we get our first flashback within the dream sequences is, is Paul and how he met Harry, who would become Harry in his box.
2: Right. Paul is just a good guy who wants to give everybody a break.
1: Harry believes that he was framed for something. He'd had problems in school and he was just out of prison. And
2: I'm not giving anything away <laughs> by saying as the movie progresses, every time Paul seems to think about the situation, Harry's guilty. He's always guilty. And it's like, well, if you have so much faith in him...
1: Why do you think this? Yes. Right. It starts here, and Paul and Brian Brown, they drive into Elstree Studios, Thorny and I. One of the things we do get out of this film, we get a lot of nice scenery of what things look like in 1984. (laughs) Right. From a Beatles perspective, I mean, these are all places where Beatles and then solo Beatles would actually work. Right. You get a weird exchange, which is kind of a play on the John Lennon and Brian Epstein exchange.
0: I love it. Come on, let's spit it out, shall we? It's all my fault. Bad judgment. Once a villain, always a villain, right? Well, my judgment wasn't so bad when I brought you into the company, was it? Then why don't you sing the songs
2: and
1: I'll run the business. <laughs> short-term cash flow problem. does not seem so short-term to me if, if, if you're making a deal which can cost the whole company. Right,
2: you're going to lose it all.
1: Then Brian Brown's infamous singing of zippity doo with Paul. zippity
0: doo zippity
2: My, my,
1: my,
0: what a wonderful day. Oh, plenty of
1: sunshine going my way. Okay, they're trying to cheer each other up, but still, it's a little bit silly. Then the first of two setups, which don't make a whole lot of sense. He's at a board meeting, he's at a recording session, now he's going to film two separate videos. Yes. At least I guess that's what's going on.
2: Apparently. It's not well introduced at all.
1: The ballroom dancing sequence I like. I like that a whole lot, actually.
2: Do you? Because I, I just think it's like... Well, he really wants to do Your Mother Should Know, or Gotta Sing, Gotta Dance.
1: At least he has enough sense this time not to dance. <laughs> right, That
2: this is true.
1: Although if it's his video, I'm not sure why he's zooming around in the director's catbird seat. Maybe they're making the video within the video. Again, I'm thinking too much.
2: <laughs> because Paul didn't think enough. Do you think that the whole fight sequence is like a stylized Grafton ballroom kind of, you know, how that all broke down.
1: I almost think it's more like a West Side Story thing. <laughs> I think Paul's thought on the matter was, oh, we'll have these kids in the beginning and then the kids will grow up and then they'll become these rockers. And, you know, just like we did, they'll come in and sort of disrupt things entirely. Yeah. But I do kind of like that. If that were a standalone music video, great i take it. Things don't have to make sense. But, but as part of a film where something is going on, it's like, oh, uh, all right. Uh, you're not advancing the plot such as it is. is. You're it, This doesn't make a whole lot of sense within the context of the story. And you're filming this video in one take all the way through. And then you also have these people in the audience that aren't on the stage. And what are they doing there?
2: Yeah. Another weird thing is that 1982 is when the kinks put out Come Dancing, which has a very similar look.
1: Yeah, that may have been what Paul was thinking of. I do kind of like the look, you know, the blue suits, and this is the first of the androgynous Linda looks.
2: <laughs> right.
1: She's in the suit, her hair is up on top of her head. These days, we would call that look non binary. lunch what i don't get is at the very end when the set collapses around them paul looks like he doesn't know what's going on now is that paul acting like paul doesn't know what's going on is it, is it stage Paul not knowing what's going on or they didn't think it through probably the latter <laughs> the whole thing collapses in on them is that part of the video was that intended okay don't think about it too hard then we get tracy allman the introduction of sandra crying now uh, another point which could have been done better we're supposed to be sympathetic for the mistress harry is married to someone else and sandra is his girlfriend granted they make a point It's not a good marriage, but that doesn't make me want to think better of Harry.
2: Well, he's just taking care of his emotional needs.
1: <laughs> then we get Ringo talking to Barbara during the launch scene. The launch scene is kind of a riff on the similar scene in Hard Days Night. Right. We get a guy in an alien costume, and that's kind of funny. Mind if I ask you some questions, then? Oh.
0: Dave the doesn't bother
1: you, does it? No, I don't think.
0: So, has the album been completed? Yeah, we've finished doing it. Is Is there a release date? Um, no, not yet. We've got to get the cover together. Maybe. Have you heard any of it? No. Oh, would you like to? Oh, I'd love to. What are you doing tonight? Nothing. Well, why don't you come over to my place and I'll play you some of the tracks. Then we can talk about it more because you'll know what we're talking about. Oh,
1: that would be terrific.
0: Well, it's only a rough cassette, but it'll give you some idea.
1: But Ringo reveals that he has a cassette of the album. The idea of there being a single master there, there may be a single finished master, but all of the tracks were recorded separately and you have a mix down at most, you're going a generation back. It's not like there's a single copy of the tape and they never recorded anything else.
2: (laughs) I think he was just trying to get her to come back to his place and that cassette was never going to show up.
1: Oh, okay. That's it. She's going to show me her stamp collection. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Right. I've got some Magrits.
1: The ballroom dancing scene, like I say, I like that. But the lunchroom scene is just all sort of plot furthering. Right. Uh, Right. Then that takes us into the next sequence, the silly love song sequence. Which, if we thought the ballroom dancing sequence was overly stylized, this thing is uh, something else.
2: Again, the intro to it was terrible. You didn't really know what was going on. All of a sudden, this thing starts to happen.
1: The one bit that I really liked, you see Sandra, you see Tracy Allman sitting there in what is pretty much a behind-the-scenes kind of look. You know, you see the scaffolding and you see the stage on the other side of her. And it's like, okay, well, that's not bad. It's just when they cut to black and they say that they're ready to start filming, then there's question as to what was going on and paul got changed awfully fast yeah. <laughs> and made up the look is kind of a ziggy stardust look with the painted white makeup and all of that
2: i didn't equate it that way i I just always questioned the michael jackson-esque dancer that appears in the middle of this song
1: you got someone moonwalking and breakdancing through the end of the song yeah and he apparently has some magic he does a couple of like really physically impossible moves that were clearly done on wires but when he lands there's like sparks coming out of his shoes and it's like wow okay paul wanted an effect sequence who could that be we'll go with that
2: yeah (laughs) right
1: this is a very disco version of silly love songs
2: yeah very much so very heavy on the
1: stylized bass which is not Paul playing it. Right. Paul was never one to play the slap bass anyway. Nope. Although I still don't hate the sequence. I mean, again, you, you pull it out, you isolate it as a music video. It's not too bad.
2: Well, yeah. And that's kind of the thing with Paul said about uh, Magical Mystery Tour. It's the one place where you could see John do I Am the Walrus. So this is one place where you could see Paul do some of this stuff. That has a value for sure. And as far as moving a... Uh, story along it doesn't work very well
1: and then as far as costuming i do like when he finishes someone comes and gives them a black and white zebra (laughs) robe (laughs) right okay that's funny again he changes pretty quickly he gets in the van going to their next thing so this is the fourth thing they've done today and they're very blatant about showing you the ticking clock hard day's night has a ticking clock but richard lester's pretty subtle about showing the time clicking down here Here's a clock. Here's what time we're at. We have till midnight. Don't forget. Between every scene, we get a scene of a clock. Yeah. So within his dream here, Paul has another sequence. Just after telling the Brian Brown character, telling his manager that Harry wouldn't do that. I, I know you wouldn't. He he has a dream of uh, Harry in the box being chased through the moors. <laughs> it's sort of Sherlock Holmes thing. Dog sniffing after him, and, which, again, serve... Only to further the plot along.
2: <laughs> and since there is no plot.
1: There's no point in the, in it at all, almost.
2: My note says BS and worthless dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> Do
1: you think you can get some
0: heat in here or are we practicing to be Canadians? Yeah, uh, should we try not such a bad boy? We have to. Yeah. Let's talk. All right. One, two, three, four.
1: Why is Paul's rehearsal studio in the middle of some rundown docks? Well, that's where you rehearse. Uh, that's where everybody rehearses. Yeah. Another sequence, which is actually funny. I, I like them running into this truck with the cops behind them. And we haven't mentioned the cops yet. You've got two investigators and they are pointless characters.
2: Yeah. They are. Completely. I'm sure McCartney was like, why do we pay those salaries?
1: He may have been thinking of the inspector from Scotland Yard and help. I mean, he plays a similar role. But these guys don't have the lines that were written in to help for the police.
2: And what are the police investigating?
1: They're presumably looking for Harry.
2: Who has not been gone even 24 hours And as an adult, and because they're not filing about the tapes. I mean, they're not charging him with anything. And I don't think you could get the cops involved anyway for 12 hours. He's been gone for over eight hours.
1: It's the previous evening he got lost. So they get out of the van. They take take Sandra home because, well, we don't want to pay Tracy Allman anymore. We'll get one little scene with Tracy Allman later, and that's about it. (laughs) Right. Paul goes in, they rehearse. Again, great band, great footage of him rehearsing. Not such a bad boy, so bad, and no values.
2: We are 45 minutes into a 90-minute film before a single new song shows up.
1: The original Roger Ebert review, which, by the way, they declared this film the week it came out, Thanksgiving of 1984, their dog of the week. (laughs) Oh, well, the arrival of this cute little canine means it's time for Dog of the Week, the regular feature on this show where each of us picks the week's worst movies. And Broad Street was it. Well, But, you know, he's got a good band. Yeah, Dave Edmonds, Chris Betting, Ringo and the percussionist. Ringo's not a bad drummer. I almost would have liked to have seen half the film be this, rehearsing.
2: And I have to mention that during Not Such a Bad Boy, No More, No More, roadies rolling a joint
1: we will give them that
2: so he's not such a bad boy no more <laughs> and the version of so bad is really nice i've always liked that song but i noticed that this version sounds more like 10 cc than i ever thought
0: when it feels so good
2: We got one more song no values one of the things i noticed is that some of ringo's best moves are at the end of that song just the way he plays is entertaining to watch it's really cool the song which you know slows down kind of by half is basically i, I want you she's so heavy same kind of arpeggio very close to it then he stops the song short because apparently he's hallucinating during his song
0: don't do it don't do it uh,
1: sorry uh, my fault he's having this vision of harry selling the tapes to uh to big bob to big bob and i'm thinking you're in the middle of playing <laughs>
2: Why is your head there?
1: Well, because Big Bob had just walked into the rehearsal space. His truck was there at the beginning. We find out that it was his truck that the van had ran into. And it took him two songs to actually come in and start talking to Paul. And you don't mess with Big Bob. Our first guest tonight is seven foot in height. He is 42 stone of weight. And he does take
0: size 16 shoes and it causes a lot of problems. He is Martin Ruan. That was his father's name in Kilchima County Mayo. Uh, he is his adopted name is Luke
1: Mcmasters, but as European super heavyweight wrestling champion, paying a visit to Ireland this weekend, his name is Giant Haystack. But apparently, he and Paul are pretty tight. They're buddies. Yeah. But he knows everyone from from <laughs> Fake MPL. What's all about them, you old girl? You
0: haven't seen Harry then? Harry, Harry James, and the Golden Trumpet, or Harry Krishna. Now Torrington works for us. Oh, him. Can't say as I have. Not lately, anyhow. Has he gone absent without leave? No, it's just his missus a bit worried about him. Not been up to his old tricks, has he? Because he had quite a promising career as a young lad, you know. Could have done very well with me. No, he gave all that up when he joined us. He told me he'd had enough of the bent life. Not easy. Tried it once. Lots of willpower needed. I gave up smoking for two weeks.
2: <coughs> Health reasons.
0: Yeah. Anyway, listen, Bob, I got to shoot over to the BBC, so uh, thanks for coming. It was nice seeing you. See you.
2: What place is it that he hangs out that they hang out?
1: And the inspectors don't question him at all. <laughs> They're just sort of doddering around outside. It's like. Right. We have a known criminal here, and.
2: And it's, he's going in to see Paul.
1: Go about your way.
2: Does it even make them question Paul?
1: No, but they do question Ringo.
2: <laughs>
1: have you considered the possibility, sir, that. This fellow Torrington is perhaps not working on
0: his own. Well, he's not the only one with a vested interest. Well, I mean, we've got uh,
1: Rath, Steve Stanley, come uh, the look at that drummer.
2: <laughs>
1: you got a gag with huge walkie-talkies. So that's kind of funny. Yeah. There's periodic sight gags which work, and like you say, in isolation, a lot of these segments, at least mostly, work. It's just, he, he, there's this plot around them which drags the whole thing down. Right. Big Bob says that he hadn't seen Harry and that, no, he, he knows nothing about the tapes. But if you want to make a side deal, we can do that. And Paul just sort of backs away. Side deal. And once again, Paul gets in uh, a vehicle and he, he's on his way to the BBC. All of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, when Harry left, we all sang Give My Regards to Broad Street because he mentioned the Broad Street station. That's interesting. That's interesting.
2: I'm going to have to introduce this to you now so that it will make sense when it becomes the piece that solves
1: it all. It's Chekhov's gun, sort of, <laughs> although it is retrofitted into the film. Right. The BBC set is actually funny. I like that. It's all these old men pottering around. Right. You got two guys, and once again, you have another gay gentleman.
0: Hello! i We met a long time ago at the Playhouse, but I suppose you remember. I think so. Oh, yeah, yes, it's how nice.
2: The song he does initially is for no one. And I looked. I couldn't find, maybe you know, who did the arrangement for it.
1: George Martin did.
2: That's interesting.
1: There's another side gag, the horn player. Rides in on a motorcycle, and at the very beginning of the session, we see him walking in with his helmet on. And as they're starting, he takes his helmet off, and he puts together his horn. That amuses me. (laughs) The interview is also kind of funny.
0: Yeah. And of course, I know, that
1: goes without saying, what all you lovely listeners do. Right then, let's
0: hear a little music, shall we?
1: As they go into the studio, you can hear hear the guy muttering, what a load of old cobblers. (laughs) As if you're not one yourself, huh? We talk about the guys at the BBC, and I mean, well, the guys at the BBC who were there for the Beatles were, for the most part, still there in 1984. So I can see why Paul would be a little bit like, can't we get some new blood in here? <laughs> That's almost kind of a comment on that.
2: You know, I thought it possibly could be because it's that kind of arrangement, very similar to
1: yesterday. You got a four piece, you got a horn player, and you got Paul playing the acoustic. Then after he finishes that, the announcer comes back in and says,
0: Good, lovely. Well, it was rather nice. I'd like to press on straight away with the second piece. What was it? um? Ellen Rick. Yes, good. Right, well, shall we go and do it immediately? As Soon as you like.
1: (laughs) We're supposed to assume that this is a universe where Paul was a beetle.
2: One would think, yes, but... Again, not explained.
1: And this guy doesn't know that he's playing Eleanor Rigby. It's like oh, okay, well. And once again, we get a shot of the clock. It is now 7.39 PM. Dun, dun, dun. Paul, we're running and
0: running out of time too. Yes. Look at all the
1: lonely people.
2: We're running out of time, so now we're going to go into a 10-minute version.
1: We get not only one, but two dream sequences within dream sequences here.
2: Yeah. I think this whole sequence is proof that he's still into acid.
1: It may well be.
2: He goes from playing with the group in the studio to being on a really fancy stage in a great auditorium. And then people in the film will start showing up in the various boxes And then it moves on from there. And then they play dress up.
1: We get about two and a half minutes of Eleanor Rigby. And then it goes into what is essentially a new piece. Eleanor's dream. Yeah. Ten minutes of Victorian nonsense. Yes. It's also how
2: many iterations there can be of Eleanor Rigby. They use the themes from that piece of music In a variety of ways.
1: As far as the visuals, you know, you start off with kind of a riff on the Magritte thing. Paul and Ringo and and Linda and Barbara hanging out within this painting almost.
2: It's the piece in the film that I feel most like was influenced by MTV.
1: The whole thing is almost like, aha, take on me kind of. But the whole thing is just a waste except for it looks gorgeous. I will give it that. The costuming is great. But as far as what's going on, when it goes nightmarish, what it reminds me of is uh, in Walk Hard, Dewey Cox, bad trip, (laughs) bad trip, bad trip. (laughs) Right. Again, like you were saying, yeah, maybe Paul wasn't quite done with acid yet. (laughs) You see Ringo and Linda and Barbara and Brian Brown getting into a kayak and going over a waterfall for no apparent reason other than, well, we're going to kill them off in my dream. Just may be unsettling.
2: It's almost like he had several ideas that he just wanted in this film. And this is where he stuck a bunch of them because it's just doesn't make any sense.
1: And even the feeling of being unsettled isn't all that great. You know, it's not like it makes you feel nervous or feel like there's any real danger going on here. It's Paul having a bad trip, right? <laughs> Linda on horseback—that's the other end. That's Linda as the princess, and she looks gorgeous there. The ghost Linda,
2: right? It also kind of reinforces uh, Paul's basic philosophy of. Don't go jump in waterfalls.
1: <laughs> Which then sort of uh, morphs into uh, a Dickensian kind of nightmare. I mean, you know, they're both sort of of the Victorian age, but it's it's a very different kind of nightmare. Orphans running through the streets and trying to escape from various bad people.
2: Right. I know this is all before it, but it just it's very Doctor Who-ish <laughs> in a way.
1: Doctor Whoish. On uh, Star Trek. <laughs> what it's like is it's like the Doctor Who films, the Peter Cushing film, not the series so much. Where you have these odd characters running off into times and, and it's very stylized looking times. Through all of this, you have Harry with the box, although the box is now a glowing blue box. Right. It's dark. It's at night. We have to make sure you see the box. <laughs> it mysteriously glows. Nightmare within a nightmare within a dream. (laughs) Right. And then it ends with Harry runs into Big Bob and Big Bob stabs him for no apparent reason.
2: Damn Big Bob. I thought he was a nice guy. Bad, but nice. You know.
1: Someone has to pay for his truck.
2: (laughs) This is true.
1: Dream Harry will pay for fixing his truck.
2: And by the way, everything we're talking about has nothing to do with how this film ends or really the storyline at all. It's just there
1: 10 minutes and 29 seconds of eleanor's dream which is you know paul sort of feeling vaguely unsettled And it
2: is called eleanor's dream isn't it but it's not unless he's eleanor
1: i'm not certain whether they were actually playing that or whether eleanor rigby had ended and paul is just sort of dreaming this continuation of the song <laughs> the bbc wouldn't give him an extra 10 minutes to just noodle around with <laughs> variations on eleanor rigby right i like that's it you finished What are you gonna do now? What are you gonna do now? What are you gonna do now? What are you gonna
2: do now? That's it, you're finished.
1: What are you gonna do now? Out. I'm going out. I like that as a line to get him out of the dream. Yeah. We get another driving sequence.
2: Right. Band on the run. It was band on the run. The Wings version. The record. This is different. That's actually Wings. Now he's got to pay Denny some money.
1: He'll pay himself, yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, then amongst the things we passed by, we, we passed by the Battersea Power Station. This was before they stopped operating the station. Paul ends up at the bar where he know Harry had been the previous day. We're just about an hour and a half into this hour and 45-minute movie. It's like, so. okay, it's it's coming to a close here soon.
2: <laughs> right, only because, well... They keep showing me the clock.
1: And while he's at the old justice, we see a clock telling us it's 1130.
2: Run out of time. You better have a few drinks.
1: Hang with this old guy who apparently means something to Paul, although Paul doesn't go to see him very often. An old guy named Jim.
2: Like his dad.
1: Maybe he was feeling bad about not going to his father's funeral in 1976.
2: First of all, the name's the same. That's interesting. And he just riffs off homilies.
1: As we know, Jim Mack was fond of doing. That's
2: what Paul remembers of his father a lot. There are exchanges back and forth that are very familial. I must be off. Well, you always were. You know, that kind of thing. So
1: My only question is, what's the monkey doing there? Why does Jim have a monkey? Maybe that's what he really thinks of uh, his stepsister.
2: I was going with everybody's got something to hide.
1: <laughs> Who would have been with Jim Mack? It would have been his his second wife and uh, his Paul's stepsister. But
2: uh, <laughs> right, well, a
1: little, little bit rude there, but uh, <laughs> she could take it. The clock tells us it's eleven thirty. Paul once again gets into his car. Nice version of Long and Winding Road. Do you think? I like the horns. Until the Giles Martin version, this was my favorite version of Long and Winding That's Road. That's interesting.
2: Because to me, it just comes off as a nightclub version of Long Winding Road. And oh my God, that choir. What the hell? Well, yeah,
1: I, that I will agree with.
2: He's like, well, I'll show Phil Spector. I'll put on a bigger choir. More annoying. but perhaps that worked with that kind of nightclub.
1: A lot of people say that they don't like it because it's two eighties and maybe that's what I kind of like. I kind of like that 80s feel to it right and it is but the horns and the choir are very 80s that maybe just because it was a little bit of nostalgia for me and because i thought that the spectre version just wasn't right you know we didn't really have a good version of the uh, unplugged you know we had some of the get back bootlegs but there wasn't a studio sounding version without the choir. We did have the 76 version but but that too was different. We see this party which was very briefly mentioned earlier. Ringo and Barbara has spent the whole day together, apparently. We don't know where they went after the rehearsal. That's rude. While Paul was busy in the BBC
2: looking for Ringo and Barbara.
1: They were having a little uh tete-a-tete, shall we say?
2: A knee-trembler, I think is what it was called.
1: <laughs> they probably had enough room in time for a bed. (laughs) We get one more scene of of Tracy Allman crying over her her photo montage of Harry. (laughs) Again, all she does in this film is cry.
2: Yeah. Badly. But Paul is soon going to get out of his car.
1: Linda looking very posh there. Uh, Emphasize more because, well, she's got a Dalmatian there next to her. (laughs) The space doesn't look like somewhere that Paul McCartney would live, given what we know about the real Paul McCartney.
2: That way you go, well, this isn't supposed to be me.
1: Then while he's driving around, the one thing this has in common with across the universe, we get a scene where they're driving around and looking at hookers. What was Paul thinking? <laughs> There's a good 30, 45 seconds of Paul sort of ogling older hookers. It's like, what's going on here?
2: <laughs> I I don't know.
1: While this is going on, we have Brian Brown in fake MPL looking very pensive. Because after all, once the clock turns midnight, everything is over to Wrath.
2: Yeah, even if you, they find it at one minute after. Run, yeah, uh, we've lost the company.
1: We see Wrath and uh, his Wrathbone people walking in to fake MPL with with the, the
2: papers and a dirty
1: look, and and very evil music playing in the background. Right. And Paul once again has the Broad Street memory as he passes by the entrance to the Broad Street station, which is no longer there, by the way. They've closed down the Broad Street station. Paul turns the car around, and we get a sweeping, upbeat, very happy cue. Right.
2: Here we come finally with the big song, which I quite liked. An odd lyric, but the sound of the record is really, really good.
1: Paul gets out of the car. He's walking along around the station. He passes by a bum with a bottle, who who I think is there to make the next scene make a little bit of sense. There's a billboard behind him that I wonder why they didn't blank out. Billboard. If you're so good with money, why are you wasting it on city rates? Or was that something to do with the rest of the plot or was it just eh, we'll leave it uh, that kind of sort of fits in
2: uh, i don't know
1: another scene on the clock is 11 55 paul kicks around some stuff he sits down he, he's on a bench he looks very dejected
2: yeah it's meant to you know get a, a feeling out of you but it's really the way the story has progressed it doesn't emotionally lead you there
0: now we look just so though they're here to say, oh, I believe it, yes, they, well, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be, there's a shadow hanging over me, though I believe it, yes, they, why, she had to go, I don't know, what she wouldn't say. I see some in Rongo, God bless you, Squire. Thank you, sir. Oh, yes, thank you. Oh, the we'll be serving in tomorrow and thank you, bum. Never knew what to say. Oh, I believe in
2: you. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I like the busking scene. Paul's busking yesterday, and and he's apparently doing pretty well. People were coming and giving him money. Now, that was a real sequence, by the way. Yep, it was. Paul actually put on the glasses and the jacket and the, the Carl Perkins wig and went out and busked. His story was that they actually did manage to collect a reasonable amount of money from Paul's busking that evening, and then they made sure to very publicly go and donate this money. And then the paper still came out two days later and said, and guess what? He kept it. Right. That was Paul's how can you win story. Yeah. Once he comes out of that reverie, yet another dream within a dream.
2: <laughs>
1: uh, he turns to his right, and there's the box. What is it? It's that? on the bench next to him. Thank God
2: in the dark that a glowing blue box could be seen from quite a few feet away. If it hadn't have been lit up, I'm not sure that
1: Paul would have seen it, yes. And then an unrelated scene of a cat wandering around behind the bench. Maybe that was Mary the cat. (laughs) Come back to visit Paul. Right. Paul, 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 don't do it. I don't care that you're most of the way through the film. Don't put it out. (laughs) Right. Okay. All right. Then not only does he find the box. Well, first off, he finds the box and his first thought is not to call and say, we got the tapes. Right. It's five minutes till. He knows there's five minutes. It's like, okay. He you see walks around for another couple minutes, and he hears he, all of a sudden. I guess Harry just decided to start knocking. Maybe the point being that he heard Paul or he heard somebody walking around outside. Right. And so he said, "Help me, help me!" And Paul finds the shed that Harry was uh, trapped in.
2: He had locked himself in because it it locked automatically, but he thought it was the bathroom.
1: He thought it was the toilet. Yeah,
2: and uh, and and they both find that so amusing that they leave arm in arm, laughing, not thinking, "Oh my God! If I don't get word about these tapes, I'm going to lose my entire business. Everything it yep. apparently is that tight." But you know what, Harry? Let's go look for my car.
1: He doesn't call faux MPL. He calls Linda and tells Linda, "Oh." By the way, we've got the tapes.
2: Thank God after he told her, she didn't fix herself a cocktail before she called.
1: We see the clock. It is 11.59. It is down to the final minute here. Yes. As the phone rings. And Brian Brown gets the line of the film. Gentlemen, I'm sure you'd like to be the first to know. We got the tapes. And that's how the film ends.
2: Well bad guy sort of. slinks off
1: linda pops some champagne and ringo and barbara and linda all laugh have a party
2: yeah they're all really happy
1: and we get the double fantasy wishing bells <phone rings> the clock spins to tell us that we're going back to reality that's right takes
2: him back into the car
1: we get a little excerpt of him back in the car and he sees the real brian brown have you seen harry no why oh no nothing uh, ha, 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 ha. And then, then the dance version of No More Lonely Nights is, right. as the, as they fly away over London. But, you know, like I say, it's not a good film, but it's, it's not as bad as his reputation is. And I still want to see it out on 4K.
2: Well, you know, last I checked, Paul really wasn't really listening to me. So maybe he'll put it out.
1: He will have to break with tradition a little bit if he does a Broad Street box set. And by all rights, there really should be a Broad Street box set because the archive collection, at the very least, is all about Paul and Linda. And this is very definitely a Paul and Linda project, even though poor Linda doesn't get very much to do in it. Right. She was very much support in the film. But, you know, as to our idea... I still kind of think it would take a lot of reworking and a lot of rewriting, but I think there's enough in the bones there for there to actually be a story and this actually make this a film, rather than, at best, this is a collection of music videos. Well. I mean, feel free to say no if you you think I'm wrong.
2: Oh, I think you're wrong. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I just, I don't see that there's anything in, in it worth saving other than, as you said, a, a collection of videos where you could chop things up and just play the music. Um,
1: but I mean, like I said, to make it an actual story, you would have to certainly take the Harry Center away. And that doesn't work at all.
2: But, you know, you, you, you compared it somewhat to A Hard Day's Night. And, you know, you could take a number of scenes from A Hard Day's Night and take them away. Oh, out of the music, the train scene, the uh, I now declare this bridge open. There's all sorts of stuff in
1: your tongue hanging out, all pink and naked. Yes, yes, it's, it's all through there. Name me is seen from
2: Broad Street where you go.
1: The Zippity Doodah is kind of funny. The Big Bob bit almost works.
2: Come on, Ed, you're struggling. <laughs>
1: no, you're right. N- none of the rest of it works real well. Ringo and Barbara work pretty well, but we don't get enough of that. Right. So you don't get a full scene, but if you edit the, oh, seven, six or seven minutes of Ringo and Barbara from the beginning to the end of the film, there's a scene which kind of works.
2: I suppose, but I, I would almost guarantee you it doesn't come anywhere close to six or seven minutes. They're just little clips.
1: There's like, what, four scenes that Paul's not in in this movie. Right. That is ultimately the the point. This was a McCartney vanity project. Yeah. And, you know, okay, all right, so so you're saying, no, I, my thought is still that you bring in some professionals that could have maybe made a story out of it. Right. But as is, it's a bad movie, but there's enough there to probably make it worth watching, certainly worth watching once a decade.
2: <laughs> as I said, how you come to something is totally down to you, you know, or anybody, you know, you bring your likes to a project and go, hey, I like that. That's fine. The fact that I didn't matters not a whit.
1: Well, except for the fact that you are by far in the majority. And I don't even like it that much. <laughs> right. I like it enough. Guilty pleasure. Right. <laughs> but even to give it that much credit, I'm still pretty much in the minority here. Well, that pretty much wraps it up. All right. Well, this has been fun Yeah. We ended up trashing it a little more than I think we'd intended to, but that's all right. Yeah,
2: my plan was always to trash it. Sorry.
1: (laughs) All right. Very good. (laughs) We will be back next week with a new show.
2: Y'all take care. We'll see you then.
1: Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group. and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Easter Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
0: the critics missed the ones that we showed Um, i think making a film like this with music and plot trying to mix the two is actually a very difficult genre and people i think don't realize how difficult it is to do that Um, the people who liked it weren't expecting too much so that the kind of slight plot that it has my fault because i wrote it um, it really doesn't kind of get in the way of the music i think personally that the um it's okay you know and i think the more you see it it, the better it is, but uh, what can I say, that was a terrific reviews you just uh, laid on me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say the more, more you see it, people won't see it once, won't they? No. You want them to come back, see I'm it time after time? Physically force them back to see it time after time, Peter. i tell you one thing, there's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they've got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, s- they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again.